That got me thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about duty and allegiance. I've been thinking about loyalty and what happens when we make a commitment that turns out to be much harder than we expected. I've been thinking about contradictions, duty, and sacrifice. I've been thinking about principle-based action, power, responsibility, and inconsistencies. I've been thinking about history, accuracy, reflection, and reconciliation. The stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell others. My guest today is a veteran and author, Michael Archer. For Michael's introduction, I'll borrow the words of journalist and acclaimed author, Greg Jones. Michael Archer established himself as a worthy spokesman for Vietnam War veterans in 2004 with publications of his poignant combat memoir, A Patch of Ground, Quezon Remembered. Now, Archer has delivered a powerful sequel in The Long Goodbye, a brutally honest and impassioned work of nonfiction that takes us even deeper inside America's faltering war in Vietnam in 1968. Archer playing the role of relentless cold case detective, driven by loyalty and devotion to unravel the mystery of Tommy Mahoney's disappearance and to bring home his beloved friend. Welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ellie. I'm delighted to be here. So, Michael, I want to start with wondering if you're a longtime fan of Raymond Chandler. When I saw the book title, I thought, okay, wait, that's familiar. You know, that's interesting you should say that. I, I like the title, and I didn't want to... Um, you know, make it too obvious. But the truth of the matter is, is that um, the the word goodbye uh, was really uh, poignant to me in in my reading about war. Um, two of my um, uh, two of the most influential books I read, one by William Manchester, Goodbye Darkness, about his experiences in World War II, and the other by uh, Robert Graves, who's World War One member, uh, uh, memoir rather, uh, Goodbye to All That. So I think it crept in that way, and I just had to live with the comparison. Well, and I think the comparison fits a little bit as far as you are unraveling a mystery. And I hadn't thought about this before, but also the relevance of just the goodbye, of how much of this journey was a way for you to say maybe goodbye, not only to Tommy, but to your experiences in in battle. Uh, Yeah, you know, that's absolutely correct. Um, You live with this, uh, and it never goes away. So you never say goodbye to it. And then uh, if you reach a point in your life, as I I did, and somewhat reluctantly, but thanks to friends of mine uh, uh, who had led the way, um, I was able to go back to Vietnam, deal with these experiences, and, and say goodbye to that, as you mentioned, and, and to, to my friend Tom. And how long was that process from the day you probably left or maybe even arrived where you were actively in the process of maybe consciously working through this goodbye? Well, that's interesting. I, um, uh, you know, I went through um, probably a milder version of post-traumatic stress disorder than most veterans did, um, because um, I had a, a good friend of mine who, uh, his name is Steve Orr, who I shared almost every one of my personal combat experiences with. Uh, we we stayed friends after the war. That that was very unusual for Vietnam veterans to do that. Um, but um, you know, my life did kind of. Uh, uh, tail away from me. Uh, I got a little out of control in my habits. Uh, I was married for 16 years, and that ended in, in a divorce. And um, I now look back and think that it had a lot to do with being being unable to uh, to uh, cope with this. And uh, but to answer your question, it was about the time that my marriage broke up and I was grounding out that I realized I didn't know anything about the Vietnam War other than rumor and, um, of course, things that were in your immediate area of observation when you were a 19-year-old kid in Vietnam, and which equated to really nothing. And so I, I started looking into it, and, uh, and it, was a, it was an eye-opener, but it was, also, um, it was also very disillusioning for a long time. And do you think that unique um, from the Vietnam War that it was not typical for people who had fought together to remain friends? Was that different in, in World War II, and is that different with people coming out of the Iraq War? Um, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. One of the things I found uh, in my research was that World War II veterans, even though they were in you know, severe combat, as you know, um, they uh, took sometimes a month or longer to return home together as a unit on board ship, and uh, they could work out a lot of their issues. And experts uh, in the field of post-traumatic stress recognized this as having been a very good thing and, uh, and made them less um, you know, volatile when they returned. But um, Vietnam vets, usually, I, I was home in my house uh, after 13 months in Vietnam uh, within uh, less and forty within about thirty six hours from leaving combat, um, and so um, people that are dropped into that situation without someone to relate to are are in a very difficult time and um, 
And yes, uh, and I don't know why Vietnam vets, I, I tried to explore this in the book, I never had a satisfactory answer. Um, I don't know why Vietnam vets didn't want to, when they came back, the war was considered a very bad thing, and probably there was some shame involved, uh, uh, whether that was, um, you know, uh, you know, something that should have happened, but um, we all went our separate ways and tried to bury it. And um, the Vietnam War, too, was a, was a very ugly war if you were in combat, and there, anytime there are civilians in the way, there are things happen that you don't want to remember or talk about. So I think that has something well, to do with I think if you think about, too, the, where psychology was at that time, there wasn't a lot of talking about, it was sort of just beginning, right, the idea of the, the importance of talking about things. There wasn't a clear definition for PTSD. Um, and you came back to a very hostile environment. Yes, you know, and, and everyone, of course, knows about the campus unrest and, and the peace movement, uh, the anti-war movement, I should say. But, you know, surprisingly, uh, we came back to uh, an environment in which our father's uh, generation, who we admired, um, uh, considered us uh, unworthy of having done that. Uh, they, many of us were unwelcome in uh, VFW and American Legion units. Um, the, of course, the assumption was that we had not been up to the task. Uh, losing the first war, so to speak, that America had um, had you know lost, and um, and I think that hurt us more than anything else because, you know, we had grown up on John Wayne movies and uh, watching uh, propaganda movies from World War II in which uh, soldiers and sailors were didn't appear to be ever afraid or or bothered by their experiences, and so we had a false sense of what to expect, and rejection by them I think hurt a lot. And I think that's a a rejection that the general public is completely unaware of. I mean, I think those of us who grew up during the war, we understand what it may have been like, not to the depths, of course, but we can have some compassion for the idea that you came back to a, a hostile environment. But I had no idea that you were also experiencing that from within other the veteran administration and other vets. Yeah, it wasn't the veterans administration. It was the uh, veteran of foreign wars. It's a, but uh, nonetheless, um, yeah. And, you know, I thought because I came back to California and California was a little more engaged in uh, in the uh, protest of the war at all levels that it was a local thing. But I subsequently talked to uh, veterans all the way across the country, a friend of mine as far as Connecticut and, and in the Midwest, and they experienced the same thing. So I want to talk a little bit about, it was interesting to me that you started the book in the prologue from the perspective of um, a 23-year-old warrant officer in the People's Army of Vietnam. And I, I was surprised when I started the book, I thought, oh, like I noticed that. And then after finishing the book and coming full, full circle, I sort of said, ah, oh, okay, like was that a very conscious choice to begin the book from his perspective? Yes, it was. Um, and it was late in the development of the book. I uh, had a, a great editor, Greg Jones, who was a, a Pulitzer finalist, gave me a lot of help. But, um, but I, I recognized that um, I knew where the book ended by the time that I, I wrote the, the prologue. Um, and, you know, I wanted to make it clear that, um, you know, this demonized, um, you know, subhuman that we were taught to uh, believe our enemy was, uh, were, were people just like us. And, uh, and I wanted to get that out there early, um, and uh, that Tom's death was graphically described by them, by Mr. Luong, in a report that he wrote later, uh, which was translated in the mid-90s, um, in which he said, um, you know, he could see Tom's face. He was only about 40 feet away. He said he, uh, he, his eyes were blue like a mean animal's, and his face was red, and it was just very descriptive. And then he, he shot him twice in the heart. Um, but to go back, as I did in 2007, and meet, I didn't meet Mr. Belong, but I met one of those who who was sitting next to Belong, who dragged Tom's body a few meters down the hill into an ambush uh, and found out he was just just like we were at the time, 19 years old and scared. So Tom was a high school friend of yours, and um, you set off to Vietnam together. And you said just 19 years old, that there are photos in the book, and, and even just mentioning the ages and the ages of the lieutenants and the sergeants, it's something that really came home to me again and again. It's just how young you all were. You know, writing the book as a, as a grown man, I, I had the same feeling. Um, you know, uh, as a point of interest to, to your listeners, um, Tom Mahoney and I were friends, but a long time. Um, Ketchum resident Jack Musso, the three of us were pretty well inseparable uh, at the time. Jack didn't go into the Marines with Tom and I, but, um, you know, he has been a, an enormous help to me over the years in helping heal. And also he's a significant part of the story. 
So I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Tom, how you met as teenagers, um, what your friendship was like. Um, yeah, we met, and I, I should have actually caught the end of your question, and that was, um, uh, you know, it was true, and there was a part um, that kind of scared me, and we were all 19 or 20, but our officers were all totally inexperienced. You know, America had not fought since the Korean War, so none of the junior officers that went into Vietnam had any actual combat experience. And as I came to find out from, you know, seeking out detailed information on this, as in part as they tried, it was they took high casualties among their ranks, and it was a, it was very, it was a difficult thing. We're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman. I'm here with author Michael Archer. This is KDPI 88.5 FM. Catch him. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on that got me thinking, and um, talking with Michael Archer. And Michael, we were just talking before the break about how young and, and inexperienced um, some of the officers were. And that comes up quite a bit in your book, that they sort of have arrived with not that much training and maybe not the training that was pertinent to the situation that they were in in that particular moment. And there's no time to get prepped, see what's going on, and get adjusted. They're, they're thrown in. Um, how much of that was a dynamic that the you all were aware of in the time in the, in the the moment? Um, that's a good question. The um, we were aware. I think of it. I think in our own minds and in our own value system, we could tell who, what we believed to be a, a good officer, one that was going to look out for your interests, uh, as opposed to a bad officer who maybe was looking out to get medals and um, and uh, you know get his career um, going on your sacrifices. But uh, it wasn't until later, when I really got into the research on the war, that um, that I realized that yes. Um, our tactics were, as you mentioned, were totally out of date. And the NVA always, that being the North Vietnamese Army, as opposed to the Viet Cong, I might add, um, the Viet Cong were local um, to South Vietnam, but the North Vietnamese Army, who we fought by the time we arrived, were the sixth largest army in the world. They were well-equipped by the Soviet Union. Many of their weapons were superior to ours, including their artillery, and many felt their, their automatic rifles. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we... Um, uh, Continued, we being line combat troops, continued to fight on their terms, uh, and when they when and where they wanted, and consequently, um, we took heavy casualties. And in, in 1968, I think seven, uh, uh, before that, uh, 17,000 Americans had been killed in Vietnam, and by the end, it was 34,000 or so. So it, it actually doubled in one year. And you were went in as a Marine, as did. Tommy, and that was something else that I learned in the book, the relationship between the Marines and the Army. It was also different than I had expected. Um, wondering if it was different than you had expected. Did you expect more, sort of, I was mentioned again about sort of a disrespect um, and maybe not a uh, confidence in Marines' abilities by some in the Army. Was that prevalent or was that just particular to the certain circumstances? Well, there was a, there was a you, you're speaking about the, the our feelings about the Marines and about the the Marines and the Army. The, the relationship between the Marines and the Army in Vietnam, as Vietnam vets will probably agree, most uh, that um, you know they had um, they had better equipment than we did. They had more helicopters. Um, they had uh, they had better services in the field. Uh, their, their medevac uh, capabilities were superior to ours because the Marine Corps you had a smaller budget and you were operated with older equipment, um, and so we resented them for that. And, and at Quezon, I was there during the siege of Quezon, which was January through April of 1968, where the North Vietnamese Army had surrounded us and dug very close to us and kept uh, kept us under intense artillery fire. It was much like trench warfare in the World War One, where you could actually smell their opposing side cigarette smoke if the wind was blowing in the opposite direction. It was that, or hear their conversations if the wind were blowing. Um, but um, when the army came to quote rescue us uh, at the end of that siege, uh, there was a lot of resentment by the Marines because we, for the first time, we saw their superior numbers and equipment and so forth. Well, I think as a layperson, you think, well, there's no one tougher than a Marine. You know, that certainly, I think, as someone who is not involved in any way in the military. So we were talking a little bit about your relationship with Tom. 
you had met as teenagers, and uh, it was interesting you spoke a little bit about the generation that you had come up in and the the thoughts about communism and the fears of atomic annihilation, which if you hadn't grown up in that era, you don't know. You know, we, we practiced in elementary school to drop and roll and hide under a desk, although now as an adult, I don't think that's going to protect us very much, but from, from atomic warfare. And so you had grown up with that. Um, and not only that, but sort of a, both of your fathers had been in the military. And so it sounded like you almost joined up as a, not a dare, but as a, let's go test our metal. Yes, that's exactly it. And I, and, and again, looking back from the perspective of, a, of an older man, you know, it seems so incredible that one would make a decision that would has, have such grave personal consequences, you know, possibly for the rest of your life, just on a whim. But um, that's, that's the case. We, um, we believed in the, um, uh, you know, what, what was considered the qualities of manhood in those days, and we wanted to test ourselves against those. Um, we thought, it's hard to believe now, but we thought that uh, war would be, um, you know, real noble and, uh, and uh, dramatic, um, and we actually cared little about the Vietnamese people who governed them. It was more or less uh, to test our, our mettle. And did you have a sense of what the war was even, like, really about and what what to expect as far as not the experience, but what winning the war meant? Um, you know, as you'd mentioned, um, and as I mentioned in the book, uh, in October of 62, uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred, and uh, it turned out to uh, later, to historians found, probably wasn't as um, uh, dangerous a situation. Um, we weren't quite on the brink of nuclear war as we as we thought we were, but it scared the heck out of us. And and from that point on, with Cuba being ninety miles away, uh, we believed that um, communism was was a threat to the, our way of life and our families. Um, so yeah, I I think that was a given. It's interesting um, having gone to high school in Berkeley, California, which. Uh, again, was one of the early uh, centers of, of protest against the war. Um, you know, I was hearing the opposite view from my friends and in and, and, and the newspaper and so social circles, but uh, it didn't seem to matter to Tom or I. We, I think we just wanted to get into the action. The um, Vietnam Magazine says about a patch of ground, Quezon remembered, was called the best firsthand account of the Battle of Quezon. And I've got to say, reading your second book, it was an incredibly enlightening and uh, descriptive from all angles, from your experience and the experience of actually being in combat, but then all of the factors that were connected uh, with that. And so I wonder if we might focus a little bit on your experience in battle Um the constant lack of sleep, constant stress, constant fear. Uh, you said you went three months without taking your boots off, even when you were sleeping. Uh, yes. The siege, as I mentioned, the siege of Quezon, Tom was there. Uh, Tom's unit, his battalion, actually relieved mine, and we missed seeing each other by just a few hours, as we found out in correspondence later. Um, but um, we were... Um, we were surrounded by a reinforced division of North Vietnamese soldiers uh, seven miles from Laos, which was ostensibly a neutral country, but they used it for what was then called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Um, and they had an enormous supply dump there. So once again, they picked, um, picked the right place and time, and the United States military leaders, in my opinion, fell for it. Um, so we ended up being surrounded and shelled constantly around the clock for 77 days. Here, here's an example, Ellie, of what I'd mentioned earlier. Uh, the North Vietnamese had um, 130 millimeter artillery pieces that could shoot 19 miles. At Quezon, our howitzers, our biggest guns, could only shoot nine. So we were outgunned. Um, and uh, they dug in close to us, as I mentioned, and, um, and ma- we made forays into their trench lines and ours into theirs. And it was, again, just right out of all's quiet on the Western Front. But to give you just a, a few examples of what it was like to live under siege, uh, we had an enormous rat problem, and we were uh, we also had uh, so we were inoculated for plague. But uh, you know there was also rabies to consider, and and there was no vaccine for that. So um, we had rats crawling all. We slept in underground bunkers, holes, and and um, the rats would crawl over us all night long. And and uh, we had tr- ways of trying to shoot them. We we made special ammunition with our forty fives, um, but we were afraid of hitting others in the hole. But I had several friends. I had one friend by the 
the name of Weaver who was sleeping one night and he didn't wipe his uh, sea ration residue off his lips and he woke up and there was a, a rat sitting on his chest chewing on his lip. Um, and, and the problem was that, uh, and I won't get into the medical aspects, but the rabies um, treatment for that is, is long and painful and um, it, it just got very, uh, very difficult in that way. And, and like you mentioned, um, I took my shoes, I would wash my feet with a rag. We, had, we were on a water restriction of two canteens a day. So you would wash various parts of your body on a Thursday or a, you know, a Friday and, and my feet were one of them. But no, I never, I, I never took my boots off uh, more than a few minutes to wash them because I figured I'd have to be running somewhere real fast. And, and you weren't sleeping and there were descriptions of sleeping maybe two hours during the night and that wasn't even a very restful sleep um, because anytime bombs could be going off or you would hear a noise or something would wake you up. Um, it's incredibly hot and humid. Um, you're under constant stress. You are being barraged by sounds and by explosions. And this isn't for a day or two days. This is for months on end. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, one of the things, again, I tried to explore more in this book than in A Patch of Ground was how did we deal with the fact, the knowledge that no, our bunkers were ineffective against large artillery rounds. For, and how, so you were never safe from death at any one moment for that two and a half months, day or night. So it, um, I wonder how we did it. And um, I, I got an inkling of that. I think, I know it, it sounds a little too simplistic, but a friend of mine sent a recording to me after he, he was badly wounded, went back to his home in Pennsylvania after he got out of the hospital. But before that, we had been in a trench line watching some Marines trying to get out uh, after the North Vietnamese. Um, and uh, some incoming started chasing us down. Uh, artillery started chasing us down the trench line, and we dove into a bunker just as the last round exploded right behind us. So we would have been killed. And uh, my friend Morley um, had a recording going at the time to, for his parents, um, and he left it on. And, and again, listening to this, he sent it to me later in my life. Listening to this, we um, as soon as we checked ourselves to make sure we didn't lose it, had lo hadn't lost a body limb or anything. We started laughing and joking with one another about how slow the other guy was and how you're going to be in a body bag in a week and all this morbid humor. And it was hysterical. And we had just escaped sure death by a minute or two. And we thought it was hysterical. I wouldn't have believed that had I not heard it on that tape. But, um, you know, we just, all, at some point, we decided not to take our ourself and our lives too seriously. There was a moment you talk about in the book when you sat down on the ground, you were pretty certain that death was imminent. And you are very reflective as to what your mindset was at that moment, and also at looking around the room and noticing how other people were reacting to that same moment. Yes. Um, there was a, if the, if the part you're speaking about was um, when I was uh, at the Combined Action Company platoon. Um, uh, a little um, background. I um, before the siege began, I, we knew we were going to get attacked, and so I was a new guy, and they replaced a guy that was closer to going home with me. I was a, a new radio operator, and we were attacked, and the, we were overrun, and we, we were almost out of ammunition, uh, but we had some effective artillery that saved our life. But uh, during that day, uh, reinforcements were coming to, to us, and they, they were shot up very badly and, and went away, and so we didn't have any new ammunition and no reinforcements and yeah I sat um, I sat on the floor of my bunker and um, it, it, it's amazing I've heard other people talk about this in the same situation uh, there was almost a sense of peace um, that came over me uh, genuinely and I I started thinking of my family and my friends and it was just as if I were kind of checking them off on a list thinking of how they'd react when they there was no body coming back because of course they the, you know they wouldn't have come to get us after we were dead um, so um, because it would have been as dangerous as the relief force was. So, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was an amazing thing for a 19-year-old kid to experience, but it was genuine. So I want to talk about, before we talk a little bit more about your relationship with Quezon and what it was like when you actually left uh, and your reflections upon that, you mentioned that you had left just a few hours before Tommy arrived. And it seemed like from the beginning you had this relationship where you were close yet apart and you had had a dream before you left for Vietnam that Tommy was killed on a hill. And throughout your experience there seemed to be these moments of sort of connection with him and yet you, you were apart 
you were never in the same actual battleground, is that right, during uh, the war? Yes, um, it, that's amazing. You know, geographically, we were never more than 40 miles from one another while we were in Vietnam. But uh, given the terrain and the the number of enemy there, we might as well have been 40, 400 miles away. But yeah, um, what had happened was uh, Tom and I uh, enlisted in April of 1966. Um, and uh, but 12 days later, the North Viet, and this is of course before we had even gone to basic training, the North Vietnamese Army attempted for the first time to take Quezon. They massed, uh, this is a year before the, the siege, they'd massed um, 3,000 troops on Hill 881 South, the very hill he ended up dying on. Um, and um, the Marines went up there to get him, and it was a horrendous battle. And the Marines on the first day left 33 bodies behind on the hill and couldn't get back up there for two days. Um, so it was, um, it was a huge, a, a very bloody battle. Uh, when it was over, the, the North Vietnamese, by the way, um, the Marines bombarded them, and the North Vietnamese left and moved to another hill. When they went up there, they allowed 40 reporters to fly in on helicopters, and they filmed the, the grisly scene, and because and, uh, it was one of the more dramatic battles of the war, probably the first one since Yadrang, uh, where so many Americans had been killed in such a short time. Um, but um, that night, or that day, Tom and I were watching TV, and we, we had enlisted 12 days before, and I was watching it intently, and uh, I guess the, um, I guess the, the, the anxiety and the fact that we knew we were going to Vietnam, and I, I rarely dream, but uh, at least that I can remember, but I had this vivid dream that, you know, as only adolescents can, that Tom was dead on Hill 881. Uh, and again, this is in April of 67, uh, and I'm st I was kneeling by his body, and I was weeping, you know, you know wallowing in self-pity and all, all that. Uh, but, um, uh, and so when he did die on that hill the following year, um, it was pretty extraordinary. And, and, and when we got in late, I don't want to jump ahead, but when we, we contacted the psychics in Vietnam, they, they were very interested in the dream. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, it's one of the most inexplicable things. One of the things I'll add real quickly is when, when, when Tom was, after Tom had died, I, I was beating myself up wondering, should I have told him about that dream? Would he have believed that he would have died? I didn't tell him because I thought he would find it you know amusing. And, and of course, I didn't think it would come true. But I often wondered if once he got to Hill 881, if he remembered that dream that I had that he was going to die there, how it would have might have, you know, changed him. It's funny to just now hear you say a year later, because upon reading the book, and when I think of all of the things that happened within that year, it surprised me to, to hear you say it was a year later, rather than five years or, or more, that the depth of experiences that you both had during that time to think that that all happened in such a short time span. Does it feel longer to you that you were there longer than that? Yeah, it, it did. And, uh, and, and Tom's, my shared experience with him once he got there, and I knew, I knew how bad Quezon was. I knew we could never win there. And uh, everyone seemed to know that, but the general, General William Westmoreland, who was, uh, even the Marine generals were against going there. Um, but um, yeah, it did. And, uh, you know, I said a year, but it was technically 50, a little under 15 months from the time that I had that dream until Tom died. He was the last, by the way, they were evacuating Quezon Base and that hill uh, and uh, that very day, July 6th, and Tom, when Tom died. So it was just a matter of a day or two he would have gotten out of there alive. But uh, and, and so it's very ironic. Um, but yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the frustrations that must have existed then and have come up now. Um, you mentioned General Westmoreland, and there's quite a bit in your book about the positioning, sort of political positioning that these generals and politicians were taking that were so affecting what was happening to you and your friends and all of the other men on the ground. And there seemed to be this great disconnect between the two. Yes. And, and I think it, again, you know, researching and, and looking back, connecting the dots with the research, you know, it was an election year and, uh, and it was important to President Johnson. Um, he, was, he was going to run uh, and he, he had a, an immense ego as people that, that knew, knew about him. Um, he had, if he won re-election and lived for the next four years, he would have been the second longest serving president that ever served. And that was important to him. You know, he took over when John Kennedy was assassinated and, and would have served another eight years had that gone his way. He actually, uh, because Quezon and the, and the, Tet, the corresponding Tet Offensive um, uh, were going on in early 1968, 
um, months before the November election. In fact, on March 31st, when we were still fighting a case on uh, in siege before Tom even got there, um, the president said he would not run again for office. So he, it made us feel like uh, kind of a coach abandoning you in the fourth quarter after he'd sent you in, and um, and you're, he realized you're not going to win the game. So he wants he doesn't want his fingerprints on it anymore. And we all recognize that he, even as un- generally uneducated 19 and 20 year olds and that changed our view of the war immediately and we uh, we became more uh, survivalist you know uh, self-preservation and uh, even though you did for your buddies you weren't doing it for your country anymore you talk about uh, an experience where um, the pegasus helicopters uh, coming in and as you're watching that you're remembering the lack of helicopter rescues uh, when you were a radio man and men were dying on the hills. How do you reconcile that in the moment? And then how do you reconcile that as history looking back on it? Yeah, that, you know, it was part of what I spoke about in the beginning of this interview about the animosity against the Army. And, of course, that was ridiculous because it was, certainly wasn't the, the, the people in the Army that had anything to do with it. Um, yeah, to that tied together. When I See, that was a, an awakening because I, I was only out of boot camp uh, six months, so I, I hadn't even been in the Marine Corps very long. But um, uh, that was a real moment when I realized that there was a disparity in the way this war was being fought um, and, uh, and, and the resentment that came with that. But, um, uh, and, and that grew as we went along. I, you have to remember, after enough case on, I still had eight, eight more months to do in Vietnam uh, before I could rotate back. And, and so what's the, the, the thoughts about Quezon? It seems like those got quite complicated because here is your base that you've been forced to to uh, protect, even though in, in as time grew, you realize it's a ridiculous job to have. And yet, if you wouldn't mind describing how you felt the day that you left. Um, yes. I uh, The day I left, we were still getting shelled. And um, we went to a, a, a bunker across from where I lived because uh, it was a little larger. And, and there was about uh, eight, ten of us. And the NVA, we were milling around out in front of the place, and all of a sudden they started shelling us again directly because they had spotters on the high ground, and they picked their targets, and there were lots of targets. And, and so we ran inside, and um, it, it was a real close call. So we, we left pretty much uh, uh, with the situation unabated in our minds. Um, driving down the road, they put us in the back of a truck, and I was standing up um, on this flatbed, and Tom Mahoney's units were or his unit, Bravo Company, 1st Marine Regiment, was walking on either side of the road in the opposite direction to take over for us. And uh, a mortar round exploded up ahead, and I saw a Marine down. And when I rode, uh, when the, uh, the uh, truck went by, no one had, was attending to him yet. And, uh, and I wondered if it was Tom. And I, I consciously went, uh, that I know he'd been through a lot of terrible things, the Battle of Wave City, a horrible battle, other places in the DMZ, but I didn't, I just had a feeling he wasn't going to survive Quezon unless he was very lucky because it tended just to grind everyone down who tried to defend it. And and what does that feel like? I mean, are you feeling that fate? Are you feeling out of control? Are you feeling like you want to jump off the track and say, Tom, you know, turn around? That's an excellent question. I, I, you know, we, I didn't feel duty bound at that moment. Um, I felt frightened for Tom. I also wasn't off the ground yet, and we, they had effective anti-aircraft fire, so I didn't know whether I was actually going to get out of there that day, which I did. Um, I think with the Johnson thing, I think the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated two weeks before and there were 100 American cities in flames, um, I, we were pretty disillusioned, and um, I think we were feeling betrayed by our country. I, I, I know that within the next few months, uh, when the announcement that Quezon was to be abandoned and given to the enemy after all that and after all the advice not to defend it. Um, and all the, the people who were lost. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, I estimated, uh, it, it, you know, medevacs went everywhere. Some of them went directly out of the country to hospital ships, to, to hospitals in Vietnam. But I estimated that in the 15-month battle of Quezon, uh, uh, totaling up all the engagements, that there were uh, over 8,000 American casualties, over 4,000 killed in action, and there were over 15,000 North Vietnamese soldiers killed and an uncounted number um, um, wounded. So do you fl- does your mindset fluctuate between single focus on surviving and getting home 
to whatever it was your mindset was when you would run out, volunteer to run out for the plane drop because you might get a can of soda, Playboy <laughs> magazine, and a, and a chocolate bar. <laughs> Those are two very different mindsets. Yeah, it is. And the story you alluded to, I think it's kind of amusing um, because it shows how the technology was so um, primitive then, relatively speaking, that NVA were digging their trench lines around us and trenches toward our positions. And again, they were close enough to, talk, to shout at. Um, and uh, the aerial photographs that were taken um, were delivered to us each day when a single-engine plane would fly down the main road of the base. And, and they, uh, these things were essentially in a sandbag or a canvas bag. These photographs, and they, the, I would go out and pop uh, smoke grenade just as the sun was coming up. By the way, on the road, a, a red or green smoke grenade, and they would um, they would drop it toward the smoke, and then I'd have to race back down because, of course, the minute the North Vietnamese saw the the smoke grenade, they started. I knew there were mortars coming you know, on the way, um, but um, the reason I volunteered to do it again, it wasn't out of bravery or or anything. The uh, the pilots, uh, I was on the. Um, tactical air control party radio operator that was in charge of all the bombing around Quezon. And uh, so I knew some of the pilots, and uh, they would um, they would put candy bars or a Playboy magazine or a can of soda pop in there. And, and so I would grab that out of there for myself and then take these incredibly vital photographs to our Colonel Lowndes, who was our, and our target intelligence and intelligence people in the, in the command bunker. And, and I often thought um, if that can of soda pop had exploded on impact, um, that uh, Colonel Lowndes in the, in the deadliest battle that Americans had fought since probably the Bulge would be without this um, important information. But, I mean, that's, it was like that. It wasn't high tech. And it was worth risking your life for in those moments for that sort of connection or reconnection with things in life that were not uh, war-related. Yeah, hard to believe. I, I, would I do it now? Uh, not, not in a heartbeat, but yeah, it was. It seemed very important to me. And you know, you have to remember that for we we didn't have any fresh food. I didn't have we didn't taste milk, for instance, uh, for uh, seventy-seven days before we got out of there. We ate out of cans, and mostly it was beans. And um, my favorite was beans and weenies. I ate it for breakfast and dinner. I only had two meals a day, um, every day for three months, um, and I still like it, believe it or not. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was different. And was there an internal struggle going on at this time that your external struggle was so complete? Were you, when you were during the battle um, of the siege, were you aware of these sort of incompatible allegiances as you learned more about maybe losing faith in the purpose of the war and maybe the way the decisions that were being made by higher ups? Yes, you know, I was happened to be in um, uh, the bunker um, alongside the, the people that were making the decisions, at least locally, and um, and I knew uh, during what we called the breakout in early April, when the Marines were finally getting their chance to literally put bayonets on their rifles and go charge at these NVA. We'd been hankering to do that, um, and uh, but it, it was a disaster. And the first unit out went to a hill 689. Uh, it was only two and a half miles from the base. And uh, they had over 40 Marine bodies left out there trying to take this hill by the end of the day. They were outmaneuvered by the North Vietnamese and outgunned. And um, it took six days to get the bodies back. So it was, again, I I believed we were winning at the time. But um, the evidence seems, in retrospect from the report, seems pretty clear that um, um, we weren't. But at the time, all of you felt like we're winning this thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's what we were being told. And, and there was a difference in my mind between believing we were winning and believing we were being betrayed by politicians at home. And um, I didn't tie the two together. Um, I didn't tie the two together in the sense that, that the politicians at home knew we weren't winning and they were making their political decisions based on that. That was an added layer of betrayal in my mind later on. And so what was that like when those dots got connected? Uh, well, it was a slow process, but uh, when I when I really got um, uh, into it in the in the late 1990s and and started my research, um, uh, it was it was totally disillusioning. And um, by that time, of course, the war had been forgotten about. Um, I might point out though that uh, that in uh, when when they made the decision on June 1st, Tom would die on uh, excuse me on July 1st of 1968 to completely leave the base for the enemy, leave whatever was there and just get out of there, which of course they should have done months before. But um, when they did that, um, 
I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, you were talking about um, being disillusioned, and I'm thinking maybe more like devastated or, or unbelievably angry. Yeah. Um, but looking back at the decisions that were made, you were talking about when they decided to abandon the base, but they don't just leave it. Yes, you're right. What had happened was Westmoreland, uh, General Westmoreland, had an enormous ego, and I'm not just you know making him the scapegoat, but he actually was so influential in getting so many Americans killed, and I can show you the math, because he refused to allow Quezon to be abandoned on his watch because he wanted to, because of his career. And he, he actually became, uh, he moved up and became a, a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff after that. But um, when, Kate, when the word came, you, may, you have to remember there were thousands of Marines now who had fought and watched their friends uh, bleed at Quezon, and we were now in different parts of the country. And, the, and it, when Stars and Stripes, the, uh, the military magazine, reported on the back page of, that Quezon was being abandoned, actually a unit of the 26 Marines had a place called Wonder Beach. 1st Battalion, 26 Marines mutinied for three days. And, I, uh, and, and like I mentioned in the book, you know, of all the things that I felt later on or throughout my life about the war, I remember standing there and that sense of betrayal. That like it was like a slap in the face. There was nothing like that. And and I think uh, case on vets uh, all agreed later that it was a big day. So yeah, we we were well into our disillusionment. Well, well, and also you want there to have been a reason for all that loss, right? And so, if at the end they say, okay, here you go, and hand it back, it it's makes I think every one of those deaths even harder. Yes, and, and, and I don't know if we, we want to discuss it right at this moment or, or a bit more, uh, later, but, you know, uh, part of uh, the mystery that I tried to unravel about my friend's death and why he behaved the way he did moments before he died uh, had to do with, uh, with that. And interestingly enough, uh, he'd written me a letter on July 4th when he uh, realized that, you know, he was part of the group of Marines that had to give up the base. And, you know, it was only a formality by then, but uh, they didn't want to be the guys uh, that did it, you know, and and it was he had he was such an upbeat kid. He was planning on going to Officers Candidate School, and he just loved it. And 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 as I found from interviewing his platoon mates, he he was the best liked member of the platoon. But he wrote me this letter, and it was he was crushed by it. He was he and just what I said. He said I don't want to be here to watch this, and after the enormous sacrifices that have been made, so it it yeah it was a huge and that's the biggest impact was uh, the contribution to Tom's death. So let's talk a little bit about the Marine Credo, to, to not leave behind your dead. Um, that comes up again and again throughout the book and throughout, I'm sure, your experience and every other Marine there. And this balance of hanging on to that Credo and yet not losing more lives. Yes, uh, and it, it, couldn't have be, it, it couldn't have been illustrated better than in the last few days, uh, July uh, 6th, 7th, when Tom died. Um, yeah, you know, we were told, and and all all services, the I give the army uh, credit. They 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 don't like to leave their people behind. But as you mentioned earlier, the Marines they display a lot of uh, uh, more bravado, I think, than the people in the army do. So they make a bigger deal out of it. But they they live by that, and their Marine Corps motto is "Semper Fidelis," always faithful, and and they live this. And um, but what happened, and especially talking to the North Vietnamese soldiers after after the war, years after the war. They recognized this, and so what they would do is they would pick off Marines near or outside the wire, like Tom Mahoney, on Hill 689, just two miles away. Um, they were ten, when the day Tom died, there were 10 Marine bodies outside the wire that were dragged into kill zones, and the Marines kept going down there to get them, and more and more of them were left behind. Um, and so it's a, you know, it's a fine line, and you, I think... This is where, what your question was was leading to, between honoring that and not and and not doing something that is tactically dumb and costing more lives, and uh, I explore that in the book. I think pretty well for uh, probably more than anyone has done it uh, in a book about Vietnam, um, the, the history of that and and how the military leaders felt about it after the Vietnam War. And why did it become so important to you in in your life's work to bring Tom's body home? Well, um. As I said, you know, when my life became undone, I realized that you know, I had two options, and you know, I could I could take, you know, chemical ways out, you know, a bad, you know, drinking or drugs or things like that, um, or I could um, I could find out what what was making me hurt, and 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 I got, received this tape about that time from Morley where we were laughing after the incoming, and I realized that um, 
it wasn't really what I remembered it to be. And then I realized, and this was most important, I didn't know how my friend died. I had no clue. I hadn't talked to any. I just knew he didn't come back from the hill. Um, and so that curiosity, I mean, I'd like to say it was all loyalty, but uh, I'm a curious person by nature. And that curiosity just sparked it and just kept driving me to ask the next question. I think that's loyalty. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> it's, it's wanting to know because you care so much about what had happened. And so what did, how did that search begin, and what did that look like at the beginning? Um, you said the Internet sort of played a surprising role, that you could now connect with people much more easily. Yes, and, and, you know, and it's ironic that even if I tried to find this information out earlier, other, earlier than the mid-'90s, um, I, I wouldn't have been able to. And, and the North Vietnamese records were not uh, in any way cataloged. And I, I found it to them to be an enormous help later. But yeah, um, I, I was kind of reluctantly dragged into, uh, I was working for the Social Security Administration in Reno, and I, I didn't see the value in computers at all at the time. And my manager dragged me into this and made me the office automation person. And, uh, you know, I'd, I was kind of, I read a lot of history my, all my life, and I was kind of a classical guy. Um, but um, uh, so I, I, I did my duty and, uh, and realized um, that, boy, this is an enormous tool, even then, as primitive as it was. And so I started exploring what they called electronic bulletin boards then, which evolved into, into websites. And, um, and I found people that were there. And, um, and that just kind of, and then one thing led to another, and it just turned into an extraordinary theory of connection. So let's talk a little bit about the continued frustrations that you endured during the search with the um, JPAC and the other organization that were sort of engaged uh, later on in a territorial battle between the, the two recovery agencies and the whole complexity of that world mm. of recovering bodies. It, it was extraordinarily frustrating. Um, I, I, um, they had documents uh, by then released, and I, which I accessed through Freedom of Information through the Library of Congress. And uh, they essentially said, well, we tried looking for him, and uh, we can't find anything. And uh, he was buried, so um, we were not going to look any further. Well, I said, well, there's no evidence he was buried. I don't know how, how that word cropped into the report. Uh, uh, and uh, it was a, that was a field um, suggestion, field team suggestion. And it was, it was approved at, in Honolulu where they're where their central investigation lab is. Um, and so what happened was, I, I, it was a dead end. And uh, I decided to go ahead and write my book, Apache Ground. And when I was getting ready to publish it, I wanted to contact an old friend of mine. Again, going back to this thing where you think about these guys every other day, but you won't, don't want to talk to them. Uh, he was our Navy corpsman. His name was Bob Topmiller. And I said, well, I would really like his input. I didn't know where he was, but I started uh, searching the net, found that he was a professor of history at Eastern Kentucky University. Um, and uh, contacted him, and he immediately was all over it. He was just so pleased to, to get together, and he, he um, helped me edit the book a little bit and gave it a nice blurb. And, but more importantly, he, became, he was frustrated too, and he said, well, let's do this the Vietnamese way. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, he, he said I'm a Buddhist now. And he goes, uh, um, and I spent, I've spent months and months in Vietnam finding myself. And he said, just trust me. And what he meant was to go to Vietnam and find a psychic, a Buddhist psychic, to communicate with Tom Soul. You, you said, it was really interesting, you said you, you think about them every day, but you don't want to talk to them. Is that because there's the, this conflict, there's a part of you that wants to leave the whole experience behind and push it away, and yet there's the other part of you that is so connected to it that it's literally impossible. And maybe is needing to bring it to the surface to have some sort of peace. Yeah, Ellie, I, you know, like I said, I really worked hard on exploring this in the book. And uh, um, uh, to answer your question, it seemed like about 20 years later or so, almost every vet I now know decided to reconnect. It was almost like... Um, like the 17-year cicada, you know, it was buried there, but it was, it, it, but nature was going to to bring it to life at some point because in that 20 to 25 year, um, these the group I go to, in fact, I'm going to San Antonio next month uh, to a case on veterans reunion. Uh, it just these groups just sprang out of nowhere, and hundreds of people just kind of 
flock to one another. And it's a very engaging group of people, um, just like it was at the time. But it was dormant. And I, I, I wish I could explain, but well, I, I maybe can't. Maybe because they, they were on the same path. They went. Another thing I noticed while reading the book, when you're talking about reconnecting with these people, is many, many divorces, as you mentioned, the, the reconnection in people's lives, being maybe on a trajectory and then falling off or making huge turns as, as time went on. So all dealing with the, with the same struggle. You know, that's an excellent perspective. Uh, and I, I think you're right. Um, you know, we had to kind of bottom out. I know I did. And uh, and if and sometimes you went past the bottom and you never came back. And, you know, um, uh, Jonathan Shea, who is a psychologist who wrote an excellent book um, um, uh, called Achilles in Vietnam, excellent psychological analysis of Vietnam vets. Um, you know, a lot of people ask about suicides. And, you know, again, the war was kind of sociologically swept under the rug, and, and a lot of not a da- uh, there was not a lot of data about that. But Shea's best guess is that, um, that uh, uh, the more, twice as many vets took their lives than were killed by the, uh, by the North Vietnamese in the VC in the war. Um, and yeah, so, but you're right. It seemed like once you, once you either made it or didn't, the upward swing occurred and, and maybe people were more confident. Maybe they were better financial shape by that time. So I think this is where the Raymond Chandler reference comes into being very (laughs) apropos in, in that first Tom was labeled missing in action. And even that happening, there seemed to be sort of all sorts of strange circumstances around that. Yes, and and that was um, uh, that was I was in, still in Vietnam at the time, and and what what occurred was um, uh, I, I I opened the Stars and Stripes. We read the obituaries every day, and 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 he showed up as missing. And um, I happened to be in a place near a hospital where I knew they took casualties from Vietnam, and I went over there and found just this is another again one of these incredible luck connections. I, I found a, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Bird who had actually been one of the first guys to volunteer to go down to the hill to get Tom. And again, I only reconnected or connected with Bruce just a few years ago, but um, he was badly wounded. He was shot through the neck. It missed his uh, carotid artery and his spinal cord by fractions of an inch. And um, I asked him if he knew him, and, and he said, yeah. He said, I was, I was there. And he said uh, um, he was dead. And, uh, and, you know, that was the second shock because I only thought he was missing. I thought maybe he'd turn up. We had people, for instance, in our unit that would get malaria and, and drop out and be sent to a hospital. We wouldn't hear about him for months, and then they'd come back. But um, I was hoping that might be the case, something like that. But um, So that shocked me. And, uh, and then... Uh, uh, his mother, um, the poor thing, uh, she, uh, you know, his father had died during the Korean War, and his mother uh, uh, received word that he was missing in action. And it took 40 days. And, and, and I, I looked at the documents, and I could see why it took a long time, but not 40 days, to um, investigate to make sure his body wasn't alive when they left the hill that night uh, in their scheduled uh, abandonment of Hill 881. Um, and, but the poor woman, 40 days, she was told he was missing, and they investigated, and then they finally sent somebody to her house um, and told her he was dead. And, and so you sort of offhandedly say you read the obituaries every day. Was that typical for a soldier? Was, were, was everyone... Yeah, my, my mother was from Ireland, and she called it the Irish sporting page, you know. And uh, I think you kind of looked at it to see the score. In other words, oh, I'm not, I'm still here. My name's not. <laughs> my, exactly. Good day. You know, it's the old joke, but to see if your name was on it, yeah. Uh, yeah obviously, you looked at it to see if there were any people uh, that you knew, and um, and uh, so I yeah, checked it out as often as I so could. So as time goes on, then he is labeled actually as as having been killed, and sort of things get stranger from there on when they actually start to look for the body. Um, there seems to be some mistaken searches as to uh, where he was, some strange techniques as far as not interviewing people that were there. Oh, yes. And you, you kind of touched on the JPAC thing a minute ago, and that's where this really comes uh, into its most frustrating uh, point. Um, the JPAC and the, uh, another uh, bureaucracy, both within the Department of Defense, called the uh, DPMO, it stands for Defense, POW-MIA uh, Accountability Command. Um, they had kind of a turf war going. They had, uh, and they were, their main offices were in the Pentagon, and they, of course, had field offices, but uh, they had much of the same duties, and they were, they were fighting, their managers were fighting not only for prestige, but for budgeting. And uh, as a consequence of that, 
they would do the most crazy things. They would, as an example, the second time they went to look for Tom, they didn't really go to the hill. They went to a village nearby to see if any of the North Vietnamese soldiers were still living there. <laughs> and, you know, that was absurd. You know, this is a very family-centric society, the Vietnamese, and, and um, you know, they're not going to go to some depressed area that's been sprayed with Agent Orange and has, you know, so many unexploded ordnance as, as Quezon and, 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 and camp out there. It was... It was showed there to me there uh, somebody's misunderstanding of how things worked, and so that dragged on. And then, as you mentioned, and this was a killer. They finally went to the hill, but they th- were digging on the wrong hill, 500 meters away. And I was researching the long goodbye, and I sent him all my research, and I'd spent years doing it. And I pointed out, you're 500 meters from where he was last seen. Just walk over there and start looking. And because they of their culture in the JPAC. They refused to accept my information. I was a layman and they all had PhDs in anthropology and they weren't gonna, they weren't gonna listen to me. And all I did was read a map. So um, Congress finally had had enough of them. And in 2013, a congressional committee brought um, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Department of Defense head um, to before them, and they reorganized, and uh, they put they got rid of these people that um, you know or shouldn't have been managing it, and and things have really opened up, and I, I'd be happy to talk about it later or uh, what what just happened this year. As a matter well, of no, let's talk about that. And yes, maybe you are a layman, but you are a layman who was there <laughs> and who had looked at that hill many many times, and who had had. Uh, not only intimate experience, but knowledge from speaking, actually speaking with other people who were there and watched Tom walk away and and be dragged down. So is it just a question of bureaucracy? I found it very interesting that it's you talked about when they had a mandate that they had to have more successes, their actual success rate went down and the falsification of their data and of what they had done went up. Oh yeah, they to cover up uh, JPAC to cover up their mistakes. They were actually, and this is in, in the congressional record. This is uh, this is admitted to. Their managers would hold fake repatriation ceremonies, taking empty boxes off airplanes to uh, honor guards, and uh, it's just uh, it was horrendous uh, in my mind, and it was so disrespectful to the families of these people that they later had to go say, well, the box was really empty. Uh, I, it was beyond anything I could imagine was going on, but it was, and uh, and it's all documented in the in the press. Um, but uh, so, so two questions in relation to that: How do you not explode with frustration and anger, or um, grab a shovel and get on a plane and go over yourself, which you you did do without the grabbing the shovel part? Yes. So maybe if we could, in these these last few minutes, talk about what has happened. Okay, um, sure. What happened, I mentioned earlier, I got a hold of my friend uh, Bob Topmiller, who is now a professor and a Buddhist, and Bob was frustrated with the JPAC as well. And he said, will you, let, will you do things the Vietnamese way? And, and I said, well, I, why not? So we went to Vietnam, and we went to Hanoi to the university. And you have to understand that, well, all the people in Vietnam, well, most educated people don't believe in this. A lot of, 80% of the population there probably does, in that um, they believe that uh, psychics or soul callers can um, communicate with a, with a lost soul. And, and in that communication, the soul will tell them where the remains are. It's very important in Vietnamese society to return remains, as it is in Japanese society in, in in other cultures to have physical remains uh, in an ancestral plot somewhere. So we went there, and it was an extraordinary experience. And this Mr. Tuan, the psychic, was very nice. He went through um, his in this room, and this was in the hard sciences building of the uh, Institute of Technology and Science. And it was amazing that they, you know, uh, that they put this in there with 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 the scientists. But um, anyway, I I tried very hard to to think and communicate with Tom, but it wasn't working. And Mr. Tuan, who was had a huge reputation, um, he had claimed, even at the age of 33, to have found 3,000 souls. He was like the, um, he was a hero in in the country. And um, um, he, this was the first American soul after all these years that he was trying to communicate with. Uh, so long story short, he said, okay, fine, you're, I'll go up to the hill and we'll bring a soul there. And he and his entourage, as I said, he was very famous, uh, but a very humble guy. Uh, they uh, they met us in Dong Ha, about, about 30 miles, 40 miles from Quezon, and we drove up to the top and hiked. We drove up to the base of Hill 81 South and and hiked up there. And he um, he found an area where he believed. I won't get into all the details, but we had a ceremony there. I left a plaque, and um, he said, "Your friend's here." And he said, "He has there's three teeth here and some some 
cartridges from his rifle. And um, so uh, I, Doc, who's a Buddhist, said, tell JPEC about this. And I was reluctant to because I thought if I did, then they were going to think me even more of a quack or more unreliable. But I, I did. And um, uh, but g gladly, uh, JPEC uh, went away, and, and there's a new and better organization taking care of this. And also uh, more information later that, that maybe there had been another body up there. And I know there was some um, thought that, that someone had gone up and buried Tom's body, and then some question about, you know, sort of was it in the exact right place? and. Yeah, it, uh, thank you. It, it, it was part, again, these connections are so numerous and so incredible to me. It's hard for me to keep, keep them in line. But uh, in 2010, uh, after all this, I received a telephone call from a former rec Marine reconnaissance uh, soldier by the name of Al Malmasolo. He is from the Hawaiian Islands. And he claimed to have buried Tom. And, um, and he what he described was pretty uh, credible. And, um, uh, and, but there was no there was no report um, of it in, in military in the marine records, but um, I talked to several people who were there and and I believed him. But the problem was that uh, the the JPAC then was still in existence and they flew Al to the hill and he uh, the, the hill is actually a series of of knolls of, of pretty much equal height and and he led them to the wrong one about 500 meters away about a quarter of a mile away, and um, and that's where they ended up digging and I and during this time I was just imploring them. That as much as I believed Al buried him, he it was dark. They're in the wrong place. Yeah, it was dusk. I, I, he couldn't have seen any um, uh, any surrounding identifiable hill objects. So. And so, do you have resolution at this point as far as what you've done for Tom, and do you have resolution as far as your standing and Tom's not? Um. Not final resolution, but yeah, I could, I could, you know, go pass away today and feel that we'd got, we'd done a, a good job. Uh, in just June of this year, um, the um, the the new organization, the DPMO, um, uh, went up and finally, for the first time, and I I'm proud to say I connected them. I, I tracked down the people that were in Tom's platoon, something that the JPAC didn't do, and and it was so it was the first time they ever took eyewitnesses to the event who were right there, just a few feet away. And, and the, the um, effort to get Tom that afternoon, because the grass was so tall, the North Vietnamese, and, and I corroborated this with Mr. Uh, Nguyen Tien Than, who was there, um, they, were, they decided just to start throwing grenades at one another because they couldn't really identify a target to shoot at and just hoping to hit somebody. Well, the sight that these two Marines who went back, when they cleared away the grass, they, had, they didn't dig, that's a different component, when they cleared away the path, there was this field of about 10 meters of grenade pins um, and spoons and all the things that come off a hand grenade before you throw it. And it was very encouraging because they, we knew historically there was a hand grenade duel going on there for about an hour. So I think they're very close, and I, they've already told me that uh, they're very cooperative with me now. They've already told me that they're going to go back next summer and dig. And so just a different attitude that we're going to actually speak to the people who were there? I mean, that's it's a, it's a no -brainer. unbelievable. <laughs> it's a no-brainer, Ellie, but they never did it. No, once I, and they never even took a North Vietnamese soldier back. They just were just shooting in the dark, yeah. And so how about your feelings of survivor's guilt and... and um, having made peace with how things played out? Well, you know, I, I, I met so many people that were suffering a lot of pain their whole life. As I said, Tom was very popular. And when I'd reached these people, I was worried. I should point out that my friend, Doc Topmiller, when we returned from Vietnam a few months later, he, he took his own life. Um, and that's another story. I, it's in the book, but it's, it's a very tragic story. So then I began to worry that I was, this was going to trigger that in other people. And I didn't of course, want that to happen. So it was very delicate dealing with people. I would contact them and say, you know, you don't have to talk to me and blah, blah. But uh, it, it, as you read in the book, it was just it was just incredible. After 40 years, they'd start to talk and their voices would choke and they'd start crying, these grown men, uh, at the memory of not having brought him back. Their survivor's guilt was probably greater than mine by that time. Um, and uh, But it helped them all. And they, I've heard from all of them. I've heard from their wives uh, which is really rewarding because, you know, my marriage had, had gone away. And um, and uh, they said, if I'd only known, you know, and this and that. And so and, and then finally, uh, Tom's sister, Claudia, who has provided the, the DNA sample if and when they find uh, remains, 
um, she had been living with a lot of anger. Uh, Tom's death destroyed her family. Her mother went off the deep end, and um, and her at age fifteen, she was virtually she was psychologically orphaned and turned out to have a, a, some struggles, but a good life. And uh, and it, and she wrote me a letter and said, "Thank you. You know, um, I didn't want to deal with this. You forced me to deal with it." And so, you know, overall, it it's helped me and it's helped a lot of people get over what they felt would, was uh, their inability to. To, to do it to help their friend, you know, or their brother. Well, thank you so much. Um, where can people get your book? Um, well, it's it's uh, in the usual outlets. It's on Amazon. It's available in all um, you know, independent bookstores. Uh, they can order it. Um, if you'd like a, a signed, if a person would like a signed copy, I can I can provide one at my website at uh, www.michaelarcher.net. And um, and it's been a it's been a delight. Thanks very much. Well, thank you so much.